Welcome back to The Table Women, a podcast by and about women in the entertainment industry. I'm Sarah DeForest. And I'm Victoria Banks. It's season three, and we've got so many wonderful conversations and creators of all kinds to share with you. You know the drill. Pull up a chair and get nice and comfy, because everyone is welcome and everyone deserves a seat at The, the table. table. Do what you want, work what you got, say what you think, and don't let them stop you. Stop you. Don't, don't let them stop Brooklyn-born Nashville native Liz Hengber has been writing hit songs for over 30 years and has had over 70 songs recorded by artists such as Ronnie Dunn, Trisha Yearwood, Easton Corbin, James Otto, Vince Gill, Trace Atkins, Peter Cetera, and many more. She's had 14 songs recorded by Reba McIntyre, including the four number ones For My Broken Heart, It's Your Call, and Still, and Forever Love. She has also penned the number one hit She's More for Andy Griggs and Clay Davidson's hit Unconditional, which hit number three on the Billboard chart. Liz earned a Gospel Music Award for her song A Father's Love, recorded by both Bucky Covington and High Valley, and in 2016, she put a Grammy plaque on her wall when the Steel Drivers' The Muscle Shoals Recordings won Best Bluegrass Album. Liz is a staff songwriter for Given Music Publishing in Nashville, and she teaches lyric writing at Belmont University. Ladies and gentlemen, Liz Hengber. Welcome to the table, women. We are super excited today to have the amazing Liz Hengber with us, songwriter extraordinaire, songwriting teacher at Belmont University. And um, man, how, how many years have you been in Nashville? When did you get here? I got here the day of fanfare in 1986. And I didn't know it was fanfare. But me and my dad were here from Brooklyn and we saw everybody in these fluorescent pink cowboy hats. And I thought I made a big mistake. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and now that's kind of what it's like daily I know, with everything downtown. going on. So <laughs> like much. almost almost thirty years and look, you came full circle. So tell us what brought you to Nashville and tell us a little bit about your your beginnings in songwriting when you got here. Oh that's that's great. Great question. Um well I you know, I always did songwriting as a hobby. And um, I was an actress in New York. Uh, I only did one show, though. I did one off-off-off-Broadway off show, The Cherry Orchard. And, um, of course, I studied theater. And then to go home to decompress from not getting acting jobs, I would play guitar and write songs. Um, back then, they had albums, and I, and I had an Earl Thomas Connolly album. I was getting into country music. And I sent, on the back of the Earl Thomas Connolly album... It said Fred Connolly with an address. And I thought that must be his brother slash his manager. So I said, what the heck? And I sent Fred Connolly a demo, a song that was called A Moment in Time. And Fred sent me back a contract, a single song contract. What? And I thought, oh, my God. And I didn't know what a single song contract meant. I thought, I've made it. That's it. My God. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm set for life. I'm set for life. <laughs> And I went, I went to an NSII seminar, and then after that I moved to Nashville based on this one contract. When I got to Nashville and I had lunch with Fred, he was like, we sort of lost interest in the song. <laughs> and I was like, oh no, I'm here. But, you know, as he should have lost interest in the song, it wasn't as strong as I thought back in 1986. 
But Fred is still a great friend of mine. And Fred Conley, Earl Thomas Conley's brother, got me, was the catalyst that brought me to Nashville. Wow. So you still keep in touch. We had lost touch for many years. And, um, but we're back in touch again. And he's such a wonderful man. I mean, I mean, of course, when he told me they lost interest in the song, I was like, what? Need of this town. But, you know, in retrospect now, it's like, no, it wasn't, it wasn't strong enough. Um, but, uh, and all good. It, it's what got me here. It's such a great, like crash course in what Nashville is and what the day-to-day life is, the highs and the lows and having to learn new terms in the industry and just kind of rolling with it. And it makes me think of a quote that I heard from you while reading over your bio. Um, You said, I had come to Nashville thinking I'd get a publishing deal in a week. Instead, I got a waitress tray and an education. And that is such a perfect way to describe the industry and especially... I mean, you've been living here almost 30 years, and it's still like that. It just looks a little bit different. So what was, what were the biggest lessons you took away from in those couple years where you were waitressing and learning and trying and exploring this entirely new industry? Oh, wow. That's a, that's a, that's another great question. Uh, I guess that, um, well, I was a waitress at the Bluebird Cafe. So good place to waitress. I know. I mean, front row seat to the greats from songwriting. Oh, and my God. And before that, a place called Bogies, which you guys don't remember. But Bogies was like the secondary bluebird. Uh, I will tell you this at at um, Bogies. The rule was you had to leave until the last customer left. And if the last customer left at five in the morning, then then you had to fix yourself a drink and sit at the bar with them. And I did that with Towns Van Zant's. And with Steve Earle, and, you know, I was very impressed, but I was also tired. I wanted to go home, but that was the rule. But the Bluebird, I, I at the Bluebird is where you asked me what I learned, Sarah, and it's, it's, I learned how high the bar was in songwriting and the pictures these people were painting in their songs. I thought I was ready, and I was like, okay, you're nowhere near ready. So it was like going to school all the time. Um, yeah, that's that. I, 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 I couldn't have had a better lesson. And, and Amy Curlin, she was amazing. She, she knew I was a waitress and she was strict with us. Boy, she was real strict. But she encouraged us to do our writing and to be songwriters. She knew that I wasn't going to be a lifetime waitress. She knew that I wanted to be a songwriter and she encouraged that. And a lot of restaurant bosses wouldn't have encouraged that. Yeah. Well, and that's sort of a tradition with the Bluebird too. Even now you go there and, and the wait staff, the, the servers, the hostess, host, the sound person are all sort of in training for <laughs> the next in yeah. line for the, the professional songwriters and the professional sound people that are on the road. And so, yeah, wow, what a great proving ground yeah. for you to be in and every night to be immersed in the songs of the incredible people that came before you. So what are some of the people you remember performing that really struck oh. you? Oh, I love it. Uh, Janice Ian and me, and we became friends, Janice Ian and um, Pam Tillis and Beth Nielsen Chapman. And, oh, I want to make my, my hero who, who died. Yeah, he, he, he died too soon. Michael Johnson. Um, Skyler, um, Schlitz, Knobloch. It was crazy. And when I think about the time, Kathy Matea, 
I mean, I'm saying names that some people are like, I know listening to the podcast or having to look up, but look them up because they were awesome performers and awesome songwriters. And they were, they were sweet to me too. They were, they were wonderful. So how does it feel to you now to be teaching songwriting when you think about yourself then and yourself now and the fact that you are considered someone who is an expert in this field now? Well, as, as you know, you doing it yourself, um, Vic, it's such an honor, especially, I'll, I will digress, go back to my college years, I was not the best college student I was really, you know, so it's sort of like, oh, my God, here I am, a college professor. And <laughs> what did you study in college yourself? The- theater, which okay. meant I, I studied getting drunk <laughs> and partying <laughs> and, my, my, yep. and networking. My, my parents were like, we're paying for this. Oh, my gosh. And, but um, my students work harder than I ever worked in college. I mean, I had so, such... Uh, respect for my students. They, they, they're so much better than, than I was. But yes, it is an honor to take everything I've learned and, um, and teach it. I love it just as much as I love writing songs. They're equal now. I mean, I love giving back. Um, you know, not all my students will, you know, it's, you know, the, it's a numbers game. So of course, not all my students are going to make it in the big time. But you know, four of them have gone on to record deals already. And I've only been teaching at Belmont for five years and already four of them, you know, so... It's a good track record. It's a good track record, yeah. You mentioned having been on Off Off Broadway and now hearing that you studied acting. How did that impact your ability to tell a song, tell a story through song? And how did that impact your ability to understand the emotions of the players, real or not, the people in the room? Because I know from for myself, I minored in screenwriting and acting, and I had never done either before I went to college. It was something that I wanted to explore. And both of those things in really unexpected ways made me a far better songwriter than I ever was before. And it took me a while to realize. So over your career and now watching The Next Generation, how do you think your time as an actress and studying theater helped you? Oh, immensely. I mean, I I think I use it every day that I enter the writing room. I use some of my acting chops um, because in acting we learned, one of the things we learned was if you want to make the audience cry, then you don't cry. Let them cry. Like if you have a scene that you're that's very emotional, if you start crying, then it's going to be too much. There's yeah. nothing there's nothing sadder than um, than an actress or or a character holding back the tears. That's what makes the audience cry. And in songwriting, you know, like you know, you know, guys, when we're writing a ballad. You know, if you go too schmaltzy, they're going to turn, they're going to like, oh, okay, this is just too much. And they're going to turn it off. So it's the less is more. Uh, What I learned in college was less is more. Um, And in in my love for movies, as an, as a, I'm not even going to call myself a former actress. I was a former unemployed actress, but as a girl (laughs) who studied acting, I, I appreciate the movies and movies paint pictures. And that's what I like yeah. to do in my songs. I, I, if there's an opportunity to paint a picture, I'll stop my co-writers and say, we have no pictures in the song. Let's get some visuals. Let's see the, the tail lights mo- in the dark. Let's see the, yeah. the neon su- lights on Broadway. 
Uh, so yes, that's how that's the answer to that question. And you specialize in teaching lyric writing, so that's your your wheelhouse that you really love to dig into the lyric. It, it seems like there are a lot fewer people working in the industry who are strong in lyric than there are who are strong in melody. Do you do you feel that way? Um, yes and no. Sometimes um, the melody is definitely focal point now in in these in this new age of you know it's so funny i wrote a book called the do's and don'ts of music row that i don't even sell anymore it's and i i'm not going it's out of print and it should be out of print because all the all the rules have changed um but uh yeah i my students are pretty creative with lyric though don't you see see that vic with your students yeah i i i do see that but i think that part of it is the program is putting such emphasis on lyric that I, I think people often come in a lot stronger in melody than they are in lyric and then they kind of develop that ability to think about lyric and polaroids like like you were saying in pictures right um, and of course oh, that's, I love that I love that yeah. lyric and polaroids that's beautiful <laughs> yeah I have a question for both of you since you're both professors and both songwriters do you Liz you mentioned the you know don't be the one to cry, let the audience cry. And when I was studying acting, I had a teacher call me out, rightfully so, um, as a very, very new um, actor. Um, and she talked about the hand gesture that you always see, that I call it the, the Jesus gesture, you know, both hands out to the audience, you're pointing to yourself, you're very... And she, she said that they did studies and they... Uh, saw that that gesture was more indicative of the person begging the audience ah. to feel what you think they should feel. Um, so if you lessen those gestures, it actually makes them feel what the words want you to, to feel. And it made me think of your example with songwriting. And I'm wondering if both of you have things that you hear from your new writers or in the room that are those kinds of things where you're like, ugh, that's so used or that's so um, people think that it's going to have one effect, but actually it has the total opposite effect. Are there certain things, phrases, ways of saying something where you're like, "Ugh, let's not do that. It's overdone. It doesn't have the effect you think it does. Well, you know, the problem is we write with so many artists and when they say the line, I've got this great line. Boy, when you left, I heard that slamming door. I mean, how many times have we heard the slamming door? <laughs> and I, and then you just have to nod your head and go, interesting. Okay, well, let's keep let's keep working. And and but and then you'll have that artist that goes, well, I like it. It's going in there, and it's going in there. But yeah, I think for me, what you what what we were just talking about the Polaroids, the the putting pictures in lyric. It seems like you hear a lot of a lot of lyrics that are created to tell you how to feel or how they feel, how the singer feels. And it's so much more effective when you can show people how to feel instead of telling them how. Show, show me, don't tell exactly, me. Exactly, yeah, show don't I me. wish I could think of an example, but because there, there's so many examples of it. Like I, I use the example of um, a beautiful, uh, Wonderful Tonight by Eric Clapton. You know, he doesn't say, oh, my girl, she's so fantastic. Look at her. He, he talks about her brushing her hair. He talks about her putting her makeup on, all the, it's those beautiful little things. So actually the song that started it all for you, for My Broken Heart, is such a beautiful song, this Reba hit. And wasn't that your very first cut and your very first single and your very first number one all at the same time? Yes. So yes. tell us about that experience. How did that come about and how did it feel to have that happen? How long into your Nashville time did this happen? 
Well, oh, it happened into year five, okay. and I was getting I was getting ready to give up because it was you know I had so many close calls and I didn't have a publishing deal yet. Uh, but the story is interesting because, and I, I use this as a story. I like to tell my students: show up for work. You know, the plumber shows up for work. The Comcast guy comes. You have a responsibility to show up for work, even though you think it's just songwriting. You, could, if you don't show up, you could be walking away from a three hundred thousand dollar day or even more. Um, and and I wrote for Mike a Broken Heart with a man named the late Keith Palmer, and he was one of Nashville's best songwriters. And we were booked to write, and I was nervous about it. I was uh, I was just a, a waitress at that point, and I was going to cancel that writing appointment because Clinique at um, it was it wasn't Dillard's then. I think it was called Casternauts. Was it was a department store was having the the sale where you get the Clinique bag, and I thought, wow, if I cancel the appointment, I can be there first to get the bag, <laughs> and I almost canceled that appointment. Um, and if I would have canceled that appointment, so many things would have happened. If I would have canceled that appointment, I would have first wrecked this wonderful relationship I I would have had with Keith Palmer, one of Nashville's best songwriters. Number two, I would have been walking away from my first cut. Number three, I would have been work, walking away from my first number one. I would have been walking away from my relationship with Reba McIntyre, all for a Clinique makeup bag. <laughs> That's what would have happened. And instead, I went. Instead, I said, okay, I'll get the Clinique makeup bag later, which I did. Um, but I did, I, I showed up. And, you know, I think Mark Irwin even tells the story when he wrote here in the real world. He was tired. I think he might have had too many drinks of the Bluebird the night before with the, with the staff, and he was mildly hungover. Um, but he wrote one of his career songs. I wrote my career song that day and had no idea. Another caveat to that song for My Broken Heart, which I hope I'm not rambling too much, but it was my first broken heart. It was based on my first broken heart. I never had a broken heart before. Keith, on, on, for his part, he was writing about his divorce. I was writing about my boyfriend leaving me for another girl, which that had never happened to me. I was naive. I was like, what? Oh, this is what a broken heart feels like. And uh, the song, but I didn't realize what I had. The song sat in a draw, drawer for six months. And, and it wasn't until six months later that I said, I'll, I'll play this one for Clay Myers, who was Reba's, you know, assistant slash, you know, he had head of publishing. So that's that. That's that wow. story. That's also such a great story for how songs can sit and wait for the right time. And I think that's still so, so true today. It looks a little bit different, maybe. The way pitching and everything happens is different, but... I work a lot in uh, K-pop and in sync in film and TV, and the songs that I am getting emails about for single song deals or placements or holds, I wrote those songs years ago. A couple of them recently, I forgot that song existed. Wow. I had, I had no, I did not remember until they sent that email. And thinking back to those days in in those rooms, they were like, oh yeah, I'm just kind of not feeling anything. What about this? It was so simple. Sometimes it feels like lightning in a bottle and sometimes it feels like a Tuesday. And both of those things are completely valid. Um, but looking back, you can see the chain of events in your story. And even to the point of that broken heart happened for a reason. Oh, absolutely. That was the, that was the most profitable broken heart I yeah. ever had. 
I always joke with my friends. It's you know, do it for the song. Say, do it for the plot. You know, if something for the plot of your life, for the story, for something to write about. Um, but I'm curious as to what you tell your mentees and and mentorship is so important to you with your students and with people um, that you're constantly working with. What do you tell them in terms of, for lack of a better term, keep going when they get frustrated like you were because you were five years and about to quit? We've heard that so many times um, on this podcast and other places. What do you tell them those little bits and pieces to help them hopefully hang on until their career song comes? I really, um, to, to say it again, I tell them to just show up. I said, okay, you're feeling bad. You're feeling like this is the end of your career. You don't feel like going, going to this writing appointment. Just show up and see what happens. I mean, what could it kill? It, it's not going to hurt anything. I mean, that's the key is it's, or if you write by yourself, show up for that. Um, you know, it's a very, I will add to that, it's a very mysterious business. You just never know when that yes is coming. You, and you don't even know which song it's going to be, you know, like you think, oh, it's this song because it's so good. And then it's this song that everybody loves. I mean, I loved From My Broken Heart, don't get me wrong. It wasn't my favorite. That's why I didn't run with it to Clay Myers. It is now my favorite, you know, because now I, I listen to it and I don't think I knew what I had. Um, but uh, yes, for the, the people I mentor, I just say, you don't, you, you, you feel lousy, go, don't write today and go for a run around the neighborhood or, or, or go, go to the gym and work out. Get your mind, stop thinking, stop getting in your head about the business. Because if you do, I mean, really, if we do think about this business, none of us would be in it. I mean, it's, you have to be mildly insane to do this. Um, but if you, are, if you are insane enough to do it, then you then you got to do it. And so get out of your head, go for that walk around the neighborhood, then come back and then show up for your writing appointment. So did it get easier for you to navigate the business after you had your number one? Was there a, a big difference in how things happened for you after that? Yeah, the times were different. Uh, and the doors started opening because of that hit. It was a two-week number one. And um, it, it was followed up the next year by another Reba number one, and then the next year by another Reba number one. So the doors were opened. The doors are still opened in 2022, but I feel like they're open for, for three minutes. It is a big, what have you done for us lately business. You know, you're, you're you know, it's like you, you get that number one or you get that, you know, f- top, you know, for me, the top 20 s- song on the radio and you better write it really quick because the the attention span has changed of everybody you know they they're the new the new person in the wings is really coming they're coming at you really fast uh but yeah it did, it did change things things for me Vic, victoria I, I doors opened um but still you know it's it's the business you know it, it, there's still the losing and winning. Yeah. You've seen a lot of change, obviously, over the time that you've been here. I mean, I've I've been here 25 years and and I feel like a survivor of so many different eras of Nashville and the music business at this point. Um, And you're always having to reinvent yourself and adapt to the new ways of doing things. So I'm wondering whether you feel, looking back over your career, that 
the fact that you're female has set the bar differently for you or has made you have to work differently than a man who might have come at the same time with the same dream? Well, for me, the female-male thing, I just never gave it much thought, uh, especially since I was writing, not exclusively, but a lot of songs for Reba back then. Um, you know, she, so it, 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 it helped me, this female perspective. But, you know, I had that outlet. Unless I'm writing for Reba, though, I write, I love writing dude songs. I love writing with guys. I tend to be, as you are, as both of you ladies may be as well, I tend to be one of the boys in the room when I'm writing with guys. I could, I can get down with them, talk the guy talk. Uh, I, my favorite thing is to write like uh, George Strait, Cody Johnson, you know, songs, uh, Trace Atkins. I had a Trace Atkins cut and that was such an honor. Uh, songs like, I, I like to say, songs with some dirt on it. Unless I'm writing for Reba, that's mostly what I like to write. So I've never given the I'm a female, am I not getting treated the same, too much weight, although I know it has happened. Um, I, okay, so what, there have been times <laughs> when I haven't been taken seriously and I guess I just don't take that too seriously because my, my my role is to get the song cut. There have been times that I've been in a writing room with two guys, and and I'm not being taken seriously. What I'm ta- what I'm saying isn't being taken seriously. But if the other guy in the room says it, they 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 get the credit. I don't care. I don't care. We've been there. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll 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 even whisper in his ear when the other songwriter goes out. I'll say you say it because he's not listening to me. And then the other guy will say it and they'll go, oh, brilliant. And I'll know it was my idea in the first place. But if you play that game and you sit there and then you go, well, it was my idea in the first place. You know, what I'm saying shouldn't be the norm. And people say, well, you shouldn't, you shouldn't do that, Liz. Speak up for yourself. I, um, that's not me. My goal is to get the song recorded and to get it out of here. So if I have to deal with that kind of a personality, I just deal with it. Yeah, whatever serves the song. I only had one Me Too episode in my my writing days in all my where I was, um, you know, taken advantage of with hands on. Uh, but I, we won't talk about that. It went away real quick. And you've been pretty uh, proactive in pitching your material too, where you don't necessarily just leave that up to your publisher to do. It, it sounds like you have sort of cultivated your own relationships in the business where you can pitch the songs directly. Is that something you've focused on purposefully or has it just kind of happened for you? Oh my God, I wish I'd, I wish I could get rid of it. I'm just... It's I'm obsessive about it, and I try to I walk the thin line between Liz Hengber, persistent Liz Hengber pest. I try not to bother people too much. I just I have I've always been I've always worked alongside of my um, uh, publisher to do that. Sometimes I've had publishers that don't like it, and I've had to quit. Um, I can't tell whether that's a good thing, Vic, or not. I can't. I have gotten a lot of my own cuts, though. I well, mean, I, I, I mean, I admire that about you. I, I wish that I had more of that in me. It's the go, the go get it part, but it requires relationships that you maintain and you know create and maintain, and and that can be a tricky thing to navigate sometimes for people. Do you feel like you are an outgoing person? Socially outgoing? Oh no, not at all. Really? I, I, I am on stage, but I'm a homebody. I didn't mind zooming, 
COVID Zooming. I was like, oh my God, this is great. I've got my pajama bottoms on and they don't even know. <laughs> I think that's true for so many of our favorite artists, writers, professors. I think part of the magic of being able to to be up there and be in the light for, for those moments is that you recharge alone and you know how to be alone and not have it be an issue. Um, and I think that's a superpower in and of itself, especially nowadays when networking and, and I mean, back in the day, you'd go to 10 shows a night and in some ways it's still true, but with social media, it's another version of that. And I think it's a real superpower to be like you and to, to be able to recharge alone and, and have that time to yourself where it's not uncomfortable. It is recharging. Oh, I love it. I love it. I mean, I had, I came from a family. We were on top of each other all the time and in, in our each other's faces. And I was really kind of, you know, chastised for closing my door. And, oh, it's Liz. She's being selfish again. I was like, so, no, I have no problem closing the door. And, you know, nor does my husband. Are there other musicians in your family? No, my brother sings karaoke and he's great. But you pretty much carved your own path with, with this. My mother, God rest her soul, she died very young. She died at the age of 50, 51. So I didn't have her very long. But uh, she, we went to a diner and um, and she never pushed me into doing anything. She was very big on me finding my own path, never pushed me into anything. We went to this diner and my friends, who is my, still my friend, Sue Meislick, her name is now Sue Radler, and she's still one of my best friends. But she was there with her mom at the diner. We ran into them and, and the mom says, Susie is giving guitar lessons. And I was like, I don't want to do that. And my mom said, she, Liz will do it. And she will be there on Wednesday. And I was like, what? <laughs> guitar? What? I don't, you know. And she bought me a guitar and I went and that's how it began. Uh, I mean, my, my my mom wanted me to be a nurse, so I think in the ultimately she was like, "No, this was not the plan." She didn't know what she was starting. Yeah. So yeah, that's how that just that happened out of nowhere. Thank God for Sue Radlauer. She, we, my first song was a, as maybe your you, Sarah and, and and Vic maybe your was it was a trailer for Sailor and King of the Road. Your first song that you ever learned. Oh yeah. Yeah, it's only three chords. Mm-hmm. I always had the problem of. I sat down to learn a song and I ended up writing my own. So to this day, I am a horrible person. Whenever people ask me to like play a cover gig, I'm like, I really appreciate you thinking of me, but I know you don't want that covers. because I don't know enough <laughs> co covers to fill up the hour. Um, I would, uh, you know, it would be such a tragedy. My parents would have songs that they'd be like, oh, please learn this. I want to hear you sing it. I could never do it, but I'd write my own right, song. Right. You mentioned uh, nowadays feeling like the door is only open for three minutes and having to have that time. How have you adjusted, uh, you know, being able to stay sharp and relevant as things have gone through so many different changes and, and evolutions in your 30 plus years? Well, as long as I want to, as long as I'm doing this still, you have to adjust. And if, if you don't adjust, you're, you're gone, you're toast. And you have to, you have your bad days, and then, but then you have to get a good attitude real quick. It, it, it is funny. It's so different. People say, how is it different from, from writing in the 90s to writing now? And I, tell me if you girls agree with this. It's almost a little bit more professional now than it used to be. Mm, yeah, I would say so. Yeah. In the 90s and in the early 2000s, 
We went to lunch. Mm-hmm. We it was, was more right. hanging out. <laughs> it was more hanging out. You went to, you know, me, me. I remember me, Anthony Smith, uh, and James Dean Hicks. We, we were the three people that like liver. We love liver and onions. And we would write a little bit, and then we'd go, okay, let's get our liver and onions at the Longhorn. And and sometimes that turned into a liquid lunch as well. And then, and then you come back and you're a little buzzed and you finish the song. And they were great songs, you know. I'm not they we got they got recorded. But today there's no lunch. There's get in there. You finish the song. We got places to be. Um, they're a, they're a lot more on the ball and driven than we were. We we were a little bit more peace, love, and tie-dye. <laughs> like, like, hey, man, yeah. You know, it's like, so I have adjusted. And because I told, I had, I had to have a talk with myself. If you don't adjust, you're writing with young people and they don't really want to hear about the 90s. You know, they don't want to hear about my war story. So I don't. And I, I, and I, I do realize that they have something to teach me too. Uh, I learned from my from my I learned from my students obviously, but I learned from my my young co-writers. You know, it's a they say different things and they have different phrases. I don't know if you guys feel that it's like yes. okay, is that a saying that I missed? Yes, they say, they say yeah, we say that all the time. Like, <laughs> let, say, I'll put you on red. I never heard that before. I was like, okay. They said, Liz, everybody knows that. I said, fine, it's going in the song. I said, I, I know, I know that I'm, I'm I don't. It's, it's not my generation. Go for it. Yeah, I think that's a really um, important thing that you just talked about in in the adaptation process that allows you to stay in the business and stay relevant and stay competitive and active is is the humility that goes along with that. Where although you are technically an expert at what you're doing, it's constantly a changing game, and you do have things to learn from the new people who are coming aboard. And I think a lot of writers make the mistake as they uh, age as they have more and more experience of of not listening and doing the talking and not the listening in the writing sessions and they're missing something and you see writers like that often fall by the wayside because they're just getting out of step with what's going on out there um, but I'm curious how you look at your work-life balance right now because you're teaching you're writing you when you're writing it's like you're dreaming up ideas you have there's more to it than just being in the writing chair um and being in the co-writes so what does that work-life balance look like for you and how do you maintain that and do you feel any guilt about not working enough or you know that kind of thing it's a struggle especially because i'm a married woman now i mean i got married in 2007 and you have to have time for the relationship as as you guys i mean i uh, have to have time for your spouses and for your kids i don't have kids but i i it's a struggle and and i have to there are days that i just like i go to the gym and i and i say i'm not taking my earbuds with me i'm just going to walk the track and not it's really kind of i don't know if you girls feel like this but it is kind of sad that sometimes you have to turn off in our business we I have to have no music on in order to decompress, whereas everybody else out there has to have music to decompress. We have yes. to have like talk radio or just, I have, to, I have to build in days where I'm not doing it or I get too obsessed with the business. Um, and I have to, rem- I am a little bit of an obsessive personality and I have to work on that when to turn it off, like the weekends, or I don't think about pissing this, pitching this to Missy or pitch 
pitching this to this person or getting mad that somebody turned down your song. There's more more out there than just songs. And in a weird way, that's going to make me be able to stay in the business longer if I take those breaks. Um, now, if I were young and I was in my 20s, I don't know if I'd be saying that. But where I'm at now, I've got to have time for other things, for travel. Uh, it's it's really important. It's a good question, Vic. It really is. And, and it is a struggle for me. Uh, I can't imagine what you go through. I mean, you're, <laughs> yeah, it's you know, a challenge. It's... That's one of the reasons I like asking that question is, I mean, everybody copes with it in different ways. And, and like you said, your priorities sort of change as you go through the different phases in your life. And, um, and part of it is recognizing where your boundaries are around your work and in a career like songwriting or in any creative career it's not typically a nine to five so it's not you know we have control over our schedules we have a lot of autonomy about when we work but often the result of that is that we work non-stop right Um, because we can be our own worst enemies when it comes to oh don't be your own boss boy she's a bitch (laughs) yeah yeah and i have the same thing with with music if i go heaven forbid if i get a massage and they put on music that has lyrics oh no please don't do that i'm gonna be taking the song apart i know (laughs) i know there's this party that we're gonna go to that my financial um you know, and I, I love the person that does our finances. And one year it was a magic show, and last year, the 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 party was uh, was a steak dinner. But this year it's a songwriter's night. I'm like, oh, oh no, wow. <laughs> <laughs> busman's holiday. It's like, okay, I'll go. Well, do you do you both think that it has gotten easier to have work life balance? At least from so I'm 25, and so I got a taste of things before Nashville got. As crazy as it is now, I started traveling to Nashville when I was 17. I started out in LA when I was 14. So I started early and got a a little hang of things. Um, But I didn't really get the bulk of what I saw some of my older co-writers get, which was this song every day, push, 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 burn yourself out and then some. And uh, I was never able to do that for my creativity anyways. It never worked. Um, but my generation now is very big on caring for the whole person, like you mentioned, Liz, and, and you know, even now I think it's, we don't have, a lot of us don't have the same pressure because we've seen what that burnout has done to the generations of writers before us. Um, and especially with COVID, we got a crash course in how to hopefully balance things out, um, as the whole industry did. Do you both think that it has gotten easier to have work-life balance, or has it been just a bit of a different kind of struggle? Uh, I don't know. I, it's, I think it's tougher now because it's more competitive than ever. It's like I said, back in the 90s, early 2000s, it was more laid back. Let's have a liquid lunch. Let's, hey, everybody happy for one another. Now it's a little bit more doggy dog. But I have, to, I have no choice. I mean, before I was married, it was nonstop for me, you know. And then when you get married, I was like, ah, compromise. Time, time, built in, build in time with your, and I see marriages failing. And I think that's one of the major reasons is that they're not taking the time to say, okay, I've got to have build in time for my spouse or my kids. Uh, So personally, it's changed for me. 
but it's it's crazy competitive out there and in my opinion uh it's it's excel- it's accelerated even more you know because once again back to the all of all of our attention we're all our attention has been compromised because of our devices and that's what's making it accelerate so much yeah that's true you're constantly getting that fomo experience of seeing what everyone else is doing that's really cool that you wish you were doing too and all oh, these opportunities they're getting and why aren't i getting? you know so i i have to really keep a handle on my my monkey mind that's always <laughs> trying to tell me that i'm not doing enough and that i need to be doing more right now and da, 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 da. and i have to remind myself to come back to my center where i'm the only person deep inside who can make a decision about how I need to spend my time and what my priorities are. And the rest of the world can tell me I should be writing 24 seven or, you know, doing all this, but I need to tell myself what's important. And you gotta, you gotta post the stuff. And my publisher says, please post. And I do post. And you gotta say, Liz Hangbert did this wonderful thing. Yes. Liz Hangbert did this wonderful thing. Yes. And, it, and it's just so narcissistic, but you have to do it because you have to, you know, be part of the business. But I do notice that I don't see Chris Stapleton going, I did this wonderful thing. That's true. You know, it's, it's like, well, he's like, hey, it's unspoken. You know, I am wonderful. <laughs> Maybe we could learn something from that, huh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love that. I think it's a really great place to kind of wrap things up by talking about the fact that you've had seven number ones, over 70 cuts so far. And... You've seen so many different things. You teach at Belmont. You do all this stuff. Are there specific people and that have really championed you and certain ways that really helped you? Yeah, I mean, Clay Myers, first and foremost, you know, he, he took me from being a waitress to being a, he was the first one to say yes and, and sign me. You never forget that. Um, Mike Sebastian, um, my, my current publisher, Cindy Owen, um, so, so many, uh, Cliff Williamson, the, the, these, uh, these are people that just are, have been fans and they, they know what I do. You know, we all have people that are not fans that they say, Hey, I don't, I don't get what she does. And then there are people that do get what you do. Uh, I, I'd be nothing without them. I mean, you know, I, I, I don't know what would have happened if Clay hadn't signed me. You know, and if he hadn't that day said, I'm going to play this for Reba, it's so much depends on the moment and the decisions people make. Um, there's also a guy, an o- older gentleman, his name is Herky Williams. Oh, yeah. I and he, he used to work at ASCAP and he's another one I'll send songs to from time to time still because he's got relationships. And I get back texts that, you know, that say, Liz, you're one of my favorite writers in town. And you know what, that'll keep me going for the next week. You know, it's, we, we do need the strokes. You know, I hate that we do, but we, we kind of do, you know, it's it like. Helps. You know, there's so many no's in this business. It's just getting a little bit of positive feedback makes a huge difference, right? Yeah, don't you, yeah. you ladies feel it, don't you? I think it's, it's, I've come to terms with the fact that validation isn't always a dirty word. It is, it's only a, a bad thing when you, need it and it's to feed your ego i think every single human being needs community and part of community is validation and having people that believe in you and see you and and see when you you need a little praise and a little encouragement and you do the same for them 
And I'll add this, although you don't th- think about it at a time, we also need to, to not celebrate them, but the people that don't believe in us that have said terrible things. Uh, we all have that, you know, we all have that. I just don't, there's one publisher that I kept, he, before I signed for at Reba's company at, at Starstruck, there was one company that was wooing me and just never, never pulled the trigger. And I said, well, what, what can I do to make you pull the trigger? And they said, well, we, they said, we just don't feel you have the spark. And I was destroyed, and I don't agree with them. I, I did have the spark. They just didn't see it, but that that was the fuel. It, it motivated me to keep going. It The anger motivated me, you know. We still have some of those people out there that it's like, you're not doing it for revenge to show them, but it'll, you know, it'll get you going. It'll get you like, okay, you know, you, you, you know then watch this. And you never know how that's going to spark it. One of the songs that opened a lot of doors for me was a song called Somebody Said, and it was just a, a big list of all of the not-so-great things people have said to me in meetings and in rights and, oh, and in I different things. It. Um, and it was like, somebody said this, but nobody asked me what I think, but uh, somebody's going to love me regardless. And it opened a lot of doors for me. And it, I just wrote it at like 1 a.m. after a string of meetings where one person told me, I love this about you, but that thing not so much. And then the next pe- meeting, the person was, I love that, that thing that that person hated, but the other thing they loved, uh, not my favorite. And it was just all these contrasts contradictions and so I think you know even back to your your showing up story and and the heartbreak and that song not being your favorite at the time you never know how those things are are gonna turn into things that make your career and those touchstones you can look back on and think oh I see it never know should we go into um our rapid fire questions let's do it so here we go if you could ask god or the universe or your higher power however you like to think of that a question what would it be? Who killed JFK? Oh, that was good. If you could clone yourself and live a totally different life, what would the other you want to be or do? Defense attorney or prosecutor. Ooh. Ooh. Wow. I love that. We can see the tendrils of, of how how you're so uh, able to stick up for yourself. And, Which would uh, require more brain cells that I don't have. So. <laughs> I could see you doing that. I think yeah. they're there. Yeah, I think they're there. <laughs> what is one thing that people don't know about you? Uh, I'm a pretty good cook. Oh, really? I think I am. Maybe I'm not, but I like it. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a it's a version of relaxation. It's your music. Everyone else has music. You have cooking. Yeah. It's perfect. What is your favorite thing about yourself? Uh, I like that I'm funny. You know, and I like to make people laugh. I, I like that I can I can laugh at life. I love that about you too, Liz. That's <laughs> thank you. <laughs> yep. Um, and okay, our last question: What advice would you give to the younger you if you could go back and visit yourself at any point? Oh gosh, that is actually a tough question. Wow. <laughs> I'd say watch your mouth. <laughs> you know, I have a big, I have a big mouth. I've, I've, I've said something. I've, I've put my foot in my mouth a couple of times in this business, uh, and 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 also I would t- tell myself not to have any too much whiskey at um, ASCAP awards or things like that. <laughs> I've ended up like hugging on Brad Paisley and people like and throwing my arms around them when they're like, okay, not. You know, cl- cl- close talker, Liz. 
back off. Oh my so gosh. yeah, that's what I would say is that. <laughs> that's the perfect place to end here. Thank you so much for spending your morning with us, Liz. Even with COVID, I was planning on, for everyone at home, I was planning on not talking too much because obviously you can hear I'm sick. Liz, you were so entertaining and so engaging. Thank you. Um, that I didn't even care that I, I sound <laughs> like a balloon head. It was so much fun. Thank you so thank much you, for Liz. spending your time oh, with thank us. Thank you. Thank you. To stay up to date on all things The Table on social media, join us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at the handle at sign the table women. Our theme song, Stop You, is written and performed by yours truly, Sarah DeFores, co-written by Taylor Foley and Will Macbeth, and produced by Will Macbeth. And as always, we'll include links to any creatives, music, television, etc. referenced in this episode in the episode notes. We'll see you next time on The, the Table. Table. Do what you want, work what you got, say what you think, and don't let them stop you. Stop you. <laughs>